0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, this week marks one year since the legalization of cannabis. How's that working out? Federal election is next Monday. Uh, We'll give you the latest on what could be happening on election night. And the impeachment inquiry drama continues as Rudy Giuliani was paid to work for a company co-founded by those two associates who were arrested last week. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML this week we'll mark the one year uh, anniversary since cannabis uh, has been legal in this country uh, it's uh, in many people's minds been a rather rocky road but uh, are we worse past the worst of it right now and and and, and where, well is it going to be smooth sailing going on it's legal right now uh, have people's attitudes changed a lot of questions and to get some answers on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Michael Armstrong. Mike is a uh, Ph.D. associate professor at the Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Uh, and uh, my, always a, a great guest on the show. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for inviting me. Happy one-year anniversary. How would you uh, assess this first year? How, how, how have things gone?
1: Uh, I would say as an overall view that it's been a modest success, a qualified success, a partial success. So absolutely a success. Uh, but as you mentioned in your introduction, there's been uh, lots of bumps along the way, and I think we'll see a few more coming up.
0: All right, let's uh, let's address some of those concerns that we probably talked about a year or so ago, and just see how they've addressed those, or if they've addressed them at all. Uh, one was a concern, and and I guess this is really during the implementation period uh, that maybe they weren't ready, uh, even though they had set a date and said this is when we're going to make this legal. It just seemed as if the process
1: wasn't really in place. Um. Uh, that's true, but I think it's maybe unrealistic to think uh, that things could have gone a whole lot better. Uh, I mean, I spent last year complaining uh, criticizing various government decisions, but um, you know things like the uh, shortage of dry cannabis um, that has been a major problem, but on the other hand, you really couldn't have expected the industry to gear up to uh, you know hundred percent capacity uh before day one uh, i mean that would be asking to build massive facilities uh build up huge stockpiles of inventory without actually getting any revenue to support that so i think uh, some of those problems were inevitable I, I mean they could have been less bad than they were um, but uh in terms of being ready uh some things you can only learn uh, once you try to do them uh, and then you have to fix the problems as you go what about the granting of
0: licenses? That seemed to be a very controversial area too. The lottery system, where they were going to be given to uh, the fact that if you weren't up and ready to go at the prescribed date, uh, that, that there a pretty severe fine system that was put in place.
1: Yes, at the at the provincial level, yeah, uh, yeah. I would be uh, for Ontario. I definitely be more critical. I don't think the Ontario government has handled this very well at all. Um, it was fair enough that they they want after the election they decide to switch from a public sector approach to retailing to private sector let businesses handle it i've i've got no objection to that as a business professor certainly um, so that brought in a bit of a delay uh, the which is why we didn't have stores uh, open in october yet the uh and the initial lottery uh back when they made that decision back in december that was kind of a caught us by surprise an ad hoc decision but uh, again i i you know give partial credit to the government they didn't have a whole lot of information at the point they knew they had shortages uh, it wasn't clear how big they really were, uh, probably because the federal government wasn't giving much information, uh, and it wasn't clear how long they were going to last. So they said, okay, we're going to only do 25 stores. Um, that wasn't necessarily a bad decision. The idea to, of going with a lottery, uh, I don't think that was the right way to do it. If they, they were going to limit it uh, to 25 stores, the license, are going to be very valuable. Well, they should have gone with a, uh, an auction instead. Uh, and have the companies bid for that right to have the, the privilege of having one of the first 25 stores. Uh, since then, I think their decisions have actually been worse uh, because uh, since spring, supplies of cannabis have improved. Uh, there's no longer really a need to be rationing licensed. I mean, we can't have a 1,000 stores open all at once, uh, but there's no reason they couldn't have put in place, uh, say, starting in the summer, say, okay, we're going to start, I don't know, process 25 licenses a week or something. Uh, but instead they went with the decision to do another lottery, uh, with only fifty licenses and uh, you know, here we are in October. I don't think any of those new fifty stores of have actually opened yet, so I think the Ontario government's messed things up pretty badly.
0: Well, let's talk about another layer of government. I mean, obviously the feds with the the legalization, the, the province uh, with a, a less than stellar job here, but then the municipalities got involved, Mike, and said, "Look, we want to make sure that these are placed where we want them," uh, and they started putting restrictions, not near schools, not here, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and and. There was a great concern about, you know, the little kids were going to be wandering off playgrounds and walking in there and and, and buying a couple of bags of stuff and going back to the playground. Uh, I, I haven't heard of anything, I mean, in the past year uh, from police or anybody else that, that any of those fears uh, have actually materialized.
1: Well, certainly not here in Ontario because we've yeah. had almost no stores. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd, I think a lot of that uh, was uh, fear-mongering. I mean, people have are justified in, in wondering how things are going to work out, uh, whether there will be problems. Um, but you know some of the people who saying complaining say in Toronto about oh, there's going to be a cannabis store within half a kilometer of a school. Well, yes, the kids to get to that can- to get walk- to walk by that cannabis store, they would walk by two or three convenience stores selling cigarettes uh and there's no way they're going to get into the cannabis store because they check i d right at the front door you can't even get in um so yeah that was that was blown out of proportion uh and in other provinces where are more stores um I'm sure there are concerns, but I, I haven't seen any news reports about, you know, kids being served. Uh, I think the retailers are well aware uh, that it's not appropriate for kids, and even if they had some doubts, they know they could lose their license very quickly. Um, so, I don't. I, yeah, that one's, I think, a pretty much a non-issue. Well, a related issue then,
0: Mike, stigma, uh, which was something a lot of us were concerned about when this whole process began, more than a year ago, really. A lot of people had this built-in idea and attitude that uh, this is an illegal substance because it's it's bad for you. Uh, it, it leads to it's a gateway drug, et cetera, and, and you know, what are the hell are these guys think they're doing by legalizing
1: something? says, have we softened those attitudes? Uh, the opinion polls that I've read about uh, say that there has been some softening. Uh, people have seen, okay, you know, the the world did not fall apart on October seventeenth. Uh, the reports from police stations, though there's not good statistics, uh, certainly the anecdotal reports across the country are, yeah, it's kind of been a non-event. Yes, there are some people being arrested for impaired, uh, drug impaired driving, uh, but there were already people being arrested for drug impaired driving before legalization, uh, and the number who are, uh, running in trouble in that are, are much, much smaller numbers than the ones, uh, being busted for alcohol impairment. Uh, likewise, uh, in terms of writing tickets for uh, for violations in other cases, uh, the police are writing far more tickets for uh, tobacco infringement of smoking where you're not supposed to smoke cigarettes than they are for smoking cannabis in the wrong spot. Um, in terms of stigma, there is still some of that around. I mean, we have to keep in mind the government didn't legalize cannabis because it's good for us. They legalized it because, okay, it's not horribly bad. Uh, I mean, we'd be healthier if we probably didn't sm- use it. But uh, you know it might be on par with alcohol and tobacco, so legalizing it is less bad than trying to keep it illegal. Um, but having said that, there is uh, the sigmas have, have reduced, but there's still some. I mean, that's part of the reason I think that uh, a lot of pe- consumers prefer to shop in stores rather than going to the websites. Uh, that's something we've seen right across the can- uh, Canada, the you know the Atlantic provinces in particular. Uh, 95, 97% of their sales are done in store, even though the government has a website. I think that's partly because people can go into the store, uh, aside from showing their ID, there's no record afterwards uh, of that visit, whereas if they buy online, uh, they have to create an account, so there's an electronic record they there, and then they have to pay by credit card, so the electronic record that they bought cannabis. So that is an issue, but it's less of an issue than a year ago. Well, and I heard
0: a lot of criticism at that time as well with the online purchases that, hey, not everybody has a credit card. Uh, so does that mean that they're not allowed to buy this stuff? So obviously they were waiting for for these, these storefronts to actually come along. You mentioned about enforcement, though. That's an interesting uh, aspect of this whole situation. And, again, there was a great deal of concern back in the day that, you know, people were going to be getting high and getting behind the wheel and, uh, it was probably happening as much as it is now before the legalization, but, I mean, it's continuing. But I, I've talked to some people that are concerned about whether or not police were ready for this, uh, uh, from a staffing level, uh, from an equipment level, to be able to do enforcement on this. It sounds as if they were a little behind uh, the, tr- the times when it came to the implementation.
1: Uh, again, I think that's a yes and no. Um, the criticisms are absolutely correct in the sense the police don't really have good uh, technology yet. Um, alcohol is something law enforcement has been dealing with for uh, decades, um, so we have some good uh, technology for detecting levels of impairment. The science is well established that, okay, you can if you detect this much in somebody's breath, that means they've got this much in their blood, which means they have this level of impairment. So that's pretty well established for alcohol, whereas that doesn't exist yet for cannabis. On the other hand, uh, again, I I kind of say, well, you know, before October 17th, uh, the police still had those same problems. They didn't have the technology then. Uh, They don't really have the technology now. But one difference is now it's much easier to do research and development. So there are several companies who are working to to come up with improved uh, cannabis detection equipment that the police could use. Uh, There are now researchers uh, who are... Um, applying for permits with Health Canada to do all kinds of studies on cannabis, the chemistry of cannabis, the biology of it, the plant, uh, how it behaves in our bloodstream. So over time, uh, the science is going to get a, a much better knowledge of cannabis in all its many uh, ups and downs, and that will allow the engineers to develop more technology. And then, you know, in time, the, the police will have that the, that new equipment. But no, we're not we're not there yet. Um, I think one statistic that would be l- worth looking at here is the overall cannabis use. Uh, according to Stats Canada, uh, in the nine months uh, or so prior to legalization, an average of about 14, uh, about 15% of the population said, "Yeah, they'd used cannabis sometime in the last three months." Uh, the nine months after, it was only slightly higher than 16%, so the the rate of reported use had only increased by one tenth. And some of that, I think, was just an increase in reporting because people were more willing to admit they were yeah. using cannabis. Yeah. So that statistic is telling us, you know, people weren't aren't really using it a whole lot more than they were before. So all the problems that people were worried about after legalization were basically are they basically the same scale as they were beforehand? Um, so we have to figure out the best way to deal with that. Uh, as best we can. One of the uh, sidebar benefits,
0: I guess we were told uh, as the legalization process was rolling out last year, uh, Mike, was, uh, listen, it's going to drive the illegal operations out of business because everybody's going to gravitate to the legal operations, uh, the storefronts when they start to to come up and, as you say, they try to increase those numbers as well. Uh, I know here in the Hamilton area we had a major problem with the illegal operations. Police tell me now that uh,
1: that's been
0: virtually wiped out. Is Is that common across the province?
1: Um, well, the front, uh the obvious uh, illegal dealers have been more or less wiped out. The, in other the words, the illegal fronts, storefronts. Yes, the, the ones that are operating uh, openly as as dispensaries, uh, those have been largely limited uh, thanks to police crackdowns in Hamilton and Toronto. Um, but we shouldn't try to fool ourselves that that has wiped out the black market. We just push it from uh, operating openly to operating uh, underground. Um because here in Ontario, we have still hardly any cannabis stores. um, So there's not a lot of legal cannabis being sold. That means most consumers are still getting it from the black market. Uh, Nationally, uh, we might have maybe 30, 33% of cannabis uh, used in Canada is now uh, purchased or obtained legally. Uh, So there's still about two thirds, at least that the uh, black market controls. Um that's partly because in provinces like Ontario and to a lesser extent Quebec, uh, there just haven't been enough stores open yet uh that's partly because up until uh, spring at least there was a shortage of dry cannabis, which is the stuff that is most popular with uh, recreational users um and it's partly because we there are still some product categories that aren't legal yet uh, We still can't get uh, cannabis vape oils uh cannabis foods, and drinks aren't legal yet. Uh, we're going to start to see those towards the end of December. So, um, What's the, what's that going to do to the market, Mike, when, when those other products become available? Uh, that's going to be interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, so first of all, it's going to plug a gap. Right now, if a consumer wants uh, food, a beverage, or vape oil, the only place they can get it is the black market, which means the black market still has a monopoly on that. Um, so the first thing that's going to change is, okay, now it's at least possible for a consumer to get something Uh, from the legal side so that's that's a step forward Uh, the second thing is that's going to increase uh, legal sales allowed a nice bump uh, because vape oils foods and beverages uh, probably are about a quarter of cannabis consumption it's hard to tell but that's what the statistics suggest so there's another quarter of the market that will start uh, slowly is being switched over to the legal side so that that's a nice step forward Um, there's a couple uncertainties. One of which is cannabis beverages. Um, so this is something that's kind of new uh, because it's fully legal here, whereas in the United States it's only sort of partly legal, depending where you are and who you are. Um, Canadian companies have been able to develop uh, new beverages that aren't really, uh, haven't really been tested anywhere else. So nobody knows how well they're going to catch on. Um, you know, drinks that are basically like a kind of like a cooler. Or a tea beverage, except instead of having alcohol, they're going to have THC as the active ingredient. Uh, So there's a lot of speculation, okay, is this going to be kind of a new big thing? And lots of people who currently drink alcohol uh, will at least partly switch over and start drinking THC, cannabis beverages. Uh, Or is this going to be kind of a niche product and a few uh, cannabis users will try it, but it kind of won't won't really go anywhere. So that's that's a big question mark uh, for the industry because they're hoping to get some profits out of that. Um, The other interesting thing is whether we might start to see more new users. Uh, So as I mentioned with that statistic, so far there really hasn't been an increase overall in cannabis consumption. Um, With foods and beverages uh, coming out, uh, we might start to see more people who've never used cannabis before uh, say, hey, I want to try that, that sounds kind of like it might interest me. Um, And, of course, that would be a concern uh, from a health perspective. because we don't really want more people using canvas, We just want the ones who do use it to use it safely.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's see if they've uh, learned from some of the bumps and bruises that uh, they encountered during the first year, and uh, we'll continue to monitor this. Mike, as always, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you today. My pleasure. Mike Armstrong, of course, uh, from uh, Brock University, from the Goodman School of Business. Uh, Just a couple of, well, one day away from uh, the first anniversary of the uh, legalization of cannabis. Uh, Just before we go to break, uh, I know that over a holiday weekend, uh, we get wrapped up with family and friends, and that's a good thing, uh, and maybe don't pay as much attention to some of the things that are happening around town. Uh, We lost uh, two great Hamiltonians this past weekend uh, with the passing of uh, Millie Gould and uh, Fern Viola. Uh, Millie, of course, uh, well, everybody knows about the women's fashion show uh, that's been on Main Street, it seems like forever, but uh, made a huge impact, of course, in supporting of the arts in this community and philanthropic uh, behavior and activities, uh, sadly missed. And uh, Fern Viola was Mr. National Anthem, of course, uh, and, uh, well, worked for the Veterans Affairs Department for many years, of course, uh, with John Monroe uh, when they were in government, and uh, was instrumental in implementing an awful lot of the uh, the programs that are in place right now And, of course, we all know him singing at the Tiger-Cad games and so many other places as well. Two great citizens uh, who made huge contributions to their community, and uh, they will be missed. But uh, their legacy will certainly live on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have an election in this uh, country, and that's, of course, next Monday. uh, Unless, of course, you already voted. The uh, advance polls were held this past weekend. And uh, we're told that turnout was actually uh, significantly higher than it was in 2015. It's interesting. You can read into that. A couple of different things, I guess. But with less than a week to go, an interesting poll that came out today uh, from uh, Ipsos Global Public Affairs, uh, which basically, once again, has the Liberals and Conservatives in a dead heat and uh, the NDP on the rise, uh, they're the ones that actually gained uh, popularity over the last week and a half or so. Joining us to talk about the implications and what may be happening on Monday night is Danielle Berrand, who is a professor, the director of uh, McGill University, uh, McGill Institute rather, for the Study of Canada. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
2: Uh, thanks for the invitation.
0: Are you surprised by the, uh, the, the sudden popularity of the NDP and the rise they've had in the last week or so?
2: Well, I think that Jack Mitzing did a good job during the different debates, in the three debates. And um, and I think that, um, you know, the NDP overall um, has uh, been running a a good campaign without major problems or issues, so I think that... uh, um, in the end, they they are doing uh, a bit better than at the beginning of the campaign. They are still not that high in the polls. They're still in far in third place, uh, but, but they are gaining ground, and that's uh, bad news for the Liberals. Professor, maybe
0: if you could just give us a little insight, uh, because some of the polling we saw at the beginning of this campaign uh, there was some suggestion that the NDP could be wiped out in Quebec. Now all of a sudden, there's the resurgence? What was it in, in, in Singh's performance that seems to have attracted more support in, in Quebec?
2: Well, yes, there, there is a there is a, the, the support is higher in Quebec, but it's still. Uh, Uh, They are still behind, uh, they are in fourth place in Quebec still, so they are doing better than they were doing in the beginning of this campaign. They are now clearly ahead of the Green Party at some point in the campaign. They were um, on on par with, uh, neck and neck, with the the Green fighting for the fifth place. But you know... um, I'm not sure that this will that the NDP in Quebec, um, because of the dispersion of the vote and and the fact that they are in, in fourth place, that they can actually keep most of their seats. I think they are still poised to lose more, to lose most of their four, uh, 14 seats. They might be able to keep two or three, um, maybe a few more if they keep uh, improving in the polls. But they are still in fourth place in Quebec but uh, I think elsewhere in the country of course it's a uh, it's a different situation uh, the the rise in the poll could uh, could really lead to um, to significant gains I'm thinking about places like British Columbia for example um, and um, and even uh, Ontario so um, so we will see I, I think that uh, uh, it's a it's really a uphill battle in Quebec for for the NDP still uh, despite where they are now in the polls, but elsewhere in the country, certainly that they uh, they could, uh, um, they, they can be more hopeful, certainly, than they were uh, a few weeks ago. Uh,
0: and again, uh, we talked about the resurgence of the NDP, but the polling I've seen, uh, Professor, in the last week or so, says the block seems to be on the increase there, and that was, a, again, a political party that seemed to be uh, all but gone from the, the federal scene, anyway.
2: Yeah, well, we, we have said quite a few times that the, the block was gone, and it's true that just a... Uh, uh, you know, less than two years ago, uh, under the previous leader, uh, most of the the, um, the bloc uh, MP had left the, the caucus, the mm-hmm. block caucus, uh, and sat as independent for a while. So so I, I think that it's a party that was falling apart and then under now under Mr. Blanchet I think the bloc has um uh, is unified as a party. They don't talk that much about sovereignty, but they they have aligned themselves with the uh, Premier Legault. So um, the focus is on the autonomy of Quebec and Bill 21 and um, and and fighting for Quebec in Ottawa. And now, um, you know, they are uh, they are basically um, uh, neck and neck with the Liberals in Quebec, which was obviously not the case at the beginning of the campaign. The beginning of the campaign, they were in third place behind the Conservatives uh or on par with the conservatives you know so so um that's a a major change and um and that is uh, something that is uh is likely to hurt uh, the liberals in Quebec now there in terms of seat projections they are they are really declining uh, at the beginning of the campaign uh, many liberals hope that they could easily get 50 seats in Quebec, up from 40 last time, and now um, it, they are likely to get uh, fewer seats than that, uh, significantly fewer seats than that. If, of course, the, we, we have to wait over the next five days, but um, it's a major, major change, dramatic change in. Uh, in, uh, in Quebec in terms of polling, and um, and that could certainly um, have a very negative impact on, um, on, on the Liberals on October 21st.
0: Well, certainly on the national scene. Uh, we look at Battleground Ontario here because of the number of seats that are available, especially in the southern Ontario area. Uh, but Quebec is 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 also secondly, you know, in, in the t- total number of seats. Of course, Quebec is second. So, what happens there is going to be pivotal, really, uh, to determine exactly where we're going to go. Is is it inevitable, uh, Danielle, at this stage to assume that we are going to probably have a minority government?
2: Yeah, the the odds are high, are very high right now. But of course, these are just it's based on on polls, and and we have some assumptions about participation and and depending on what's the level of participation on october 21st we saw participation is up in advance polling so um you know we can have surprises but certainly uh the the odds of a minority government are much higher now than they were at the beginning of the campaign and um and uh well in ontario you mentioned ontario things are a bit more stable um and the liberals are still ahead and so that's the hope for the liberals that the uh Uh, They can do very well in Ontario, and that will offset uh, some of the potential losses in other parts of the country, Atlantic Canada, um, the Prairies, and and perhaps uh, even Quebec now. So um, we will see
0: one of the interesting uh, aspects of this is we've watched some of the polling and i'm trying to you know get a broader picture here from looking at because there are different polls like two or three polls every day now and it's hard to actually get a clear picture of what's happening but it's pretty pretty consistent obviously the liberals had a slight lead at one point then the conservatives had a slight lead but by and large over the course of this campaign it's it's been neck and neck uh, you know within the margin of error but i'm not getting the sense that anybody is really uh, enthralled with the party leaders uh, neither mr trudeau nor mr Shear uh and, and and until recently i i you could even throw Jagmeet singh into that as well although he's had a bit of a resurgence in the last week or so yeah. it, this mm-hmm. it almost seems as it, this is going to be the none of the above uh, uh campaign but they, i mean they've got to select somebody
2: yeah. no absolutely i think that there is um a lot of there are there's disenchantment towards justin trudeau and it's something that you know is, is personal The level of personal support for Justin Trudeau has has declined over time, of course, since 2015. There was the honeymoon at the beginning, but if you look at numbers, things have declined. You know, support for him, approval for for Justin Trudeau has um, declined over time and there were a number of shocks or 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 moments like SNC-Lavalin or the the black face brown face issue and so forth um and for Andrew Sheer but he was never really that popular mm-hmm. <laughs> in the first place and and you can look at the the conservatives and how they've been doing in this uh, this campaign uh, overall and you can see that they um you know they have not uh, since September they have not uh, really gained any uh, significant ground they are about um, you know where they were uh, um, um, in terms of the, in the polls. Uh, the Conservatives are actually a bit lower now than they were in, uh, in, at the beginning of the at the beginning of the campaign, slightly lower, and the Liberals too. So the two main parties have not uh, have not done well, and I think it's related to yes, the performance of their 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 respective leader, and um, and and that's an opportunity for uh, for the NDP and the block in Quebec.
0: And, and uh, that's a very valid point here, because the movement that we've seen in polling in the last couple of weeks has essentially been from the centre-left, isn't it? I mean, you're right, the right wing, the Conservative support has been pretty static. They're, they're there, they're prob- yep. probably not going yep. anywhere, but they're not really no. adding to their numbers either.
2: Absolutely. So there is the Conservative base, and they remain faithful to the party, no matter who the leader is. Um, but then you can see movement in terms of um, you know the green not doing uh, as well, although it's not a big decline, but it's certainly not the ascending pattern. But it's the NDP and the Bloc, and yeah, we can consider that the Bloc is also a center-left party on most issues. Um, so this is where the movement is, and I, uh, that's why I think it's especially uh, problematic for for the Liberals because that's their turf, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got to ask you about the uh, the the word that's been circulating over the last couple of days here, Professor, and that is coalition. Uh yes. Jagmeet Singh mentioned that in passing at the beginning of the weekend walked back on that just the very next day. Yes. Uh but of course the the conservatives grabbed onto that and said, you know, if you vote you know this this is going to take us down the road to perdition. Canada will go to rack and ruin if you have a coalition government. When did coalition become such a dirty word?
2: Yeah, it's well, I think there was the issue at the in in the uh, during the Harper years when there was this attempt uh, yeah. uh, discussion about the potential coalition and 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 I think uh, it became a dirty word in part because of the involvement of the block who uh, will have needed to prompt that coalition. That discussion was in 2008, 2009, if I recall properly. But, um, you know, I, I think that the, at the federal level, uh, coalition governments are extremely rare. There was one, if you want to call it coalition government, there was the union government uh, uh, with uh, Prime Minister Borden in 1917. <laughs> That's the only example. <laughs> so it's really far in the past, and it was under very specific circumstances, uh, the First World War and the debate over conscription. But uh, it doesn't mean that it can't happen. It's perfectly legal. It's, it's uh, but but, but it's not, let's say, part of the, um, you know, it's not really uh, uh, something that we are used to at the federal level. It's a bit more common at the provincial level. But it's it's certainly uh, controversial politically, but it, it can be done. But we will see uh, what the results look like on, uh, on uh, October 21st. But if we have a minority, minority parliament, then, um, you know there are a lot of uh, lot of possibilities in terms of who could form a minority government or even a coalition government, so uh it will be quite an exciting election night and uh, we might be also discussing who will become prime minister and who will be in power uh, uh, after the twenty first We might not know on that night or uh, and it may take a while to sort things out so it it can be quite a, an exciting uh, uh, an exciting political moment here for Canada. But again, we have to wait until we have the results on the 21st to draw any conclusions about uh, uh, who might um, form government.
0: Exactly. And, and I, I suppose when you look at past history, and I just say you have to go back to 1917 to actually point to a federal coalition, uh, the, the more practical and, and I guess the more reasoned and, and the more often used uh, poorly is simply have whoever the power, the party is that has the balance of power. In this case, it may well be the NDP. Uh, they pretty much work on an ad hoc basis, don't they? I mean, you know, policy versus policy, uh, as as opposed to simply saying we'll support everything you do as long as you do this for us. Uh, Because a a coalition means, okay, you know, some of the other members of that party are going to be part of the cabinet, even though they weren't elected as government. Uh, But what we've seen with uh, the liberal minorities over the last little while uh, with Pearson and, and and with Paul Martin, yep. it is working together on stuff. And, I mean, actually, it, in many ways, mm-hmm. you could make an argument that it's been rather beneficial. I mean, that's how we got our Medicare program, uh, revisions yep. to the Canada Pension Plan. A lot of decent things have happened with that, and it's not technically a coalition. It's just uh, the opposition party working with the yep. government on stuff they can support.
2: That's a minority. That's what we call just a minority government. Yeah. Uh, there's, if there is no formal coalition and, and you have... So normally you will have members of the other party being cabinet ministers. That will be a formal coalition. But there are different ways to do it. You could have also some form of agreement without having these, you know, members of the other party becoming ministers. There are all sorts of scenarios. But it's true what you're saying. But that's in the case of a. Uh, if the liberals have uh, uh, the highest number of seats, but not a majority of seats, they will have my they could form minority government. But if it's the conservatives, uh, the, the the potential allies that they have, uh, because the other parties are basically on the, the the left of the political spectrum or center left, it's it's just harder for the conservatives. So uh, on some votes they could get support from the bloc if it's about like decentralizing the federal system or things like that, or maybe on some other measures from the liberals on the NDP. But it's just harder, and we saw that the Harper years, during minority government uh, under Stephen Harper, that uh, but but they found a way to, to <laughs> not only stay in power for for a number of years, but uh, later on to in 2011 to actually uh, f- uh, uh, win an election to form majority government. So um, if the co- the Conservatives will have uh, in will be in minority situation, they could they could find ways to enact policies as well. But it's true that the combo Liberal NDP is a classic one and. And they have more in common than the Conservatives with any of the other parties, really.
0: I I get the sense on election night, Professor, we're going to be talking about some of these constitutional machinations that could occur about, you know, can can you form a government? Can you govern the country? And and, uh, it's going to be late into the night, I guess. So I guess we better get our rest now because I think it's going to be a a rather long and drawn out uh, affair uh, next Monday. Uh, Always a pleasure to have you on, Professor. Thank you so much for your insight today.
2: Thanks for the invitation. Have a wonderful day. You too. That's uh,
0: Professor Danielle Beland uh, from McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. While the impeachment inquiry drama continues south of the border, it's uh, reported, uh, first of all, that uh, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was actually paid for work that he did for that company, uh, with the two principals of which, of course, were arrested last week at uh, a New York airport. Uh, Also, U.S. troops are scrambling to exit Syria. Sanctions have been announced uh, against Turkey. And in a related story that we just heard today, uh, now we're finding out that Russian troops are starting to patrol the northern border of Syria. Who would have thought that would have happened? Joining us to talk about all of this and the implications is Elliot Tepper, emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning. This changes by the minute. Uh, It does. The Syrian situation is is going from bad to worse, and we've seen some of the stories about what's happening with the Kurds there. Uh, But Donald Trump, who essentially gave Turkey a free pass to do what they wanted, uh, now all of a sudden is playing uh, the, 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 the marshal again and saying he's going to provide sanctions. Do we take him at his word here?
3: Oh, they can say anything they want now, but, the, you know, that moment is past. Uh, whatever the U.S. chooses or says it's going to do or wants to do is uh, close to irrelevant once the Turks actually moved in, and that clearly was green-lighted uh, by the U.S.,
0: and what's happened has happened here. As I say, the Russians are back in there. Uh, we've seen what happened with the Turkish army there. These are more than just incursions of that we seem to be seeing.
3: Oh yes. Well, it was always more than a, an incursion. Might mean you, you go across the border and take some action and go back home. But this was clearly going to be a prolonged operation to, as Turkey said, set up a a safe zone in their point of view, uh, clearing out what they considered to be terrorists and a terrorist threat to Turkey uh... and uh... change the equation in northern syria they would not have done so had the u.s. not uh... said well it's okay by us now the u.s. is saying that's not not what was happening I- i've been close to gobsmacked frankly bill by by the american defense department now saying the whole reason that we got out of there is because uh, we didn't want to get caught in between two forces with our little handful of troops, and it was just untenable, so we had to do it. But of course, a few quick things there. Why were there only a handful of troops? The U.S. has been withdrawing its numbers. There were far more. Basically, Trump pulled troops out of uh, the Kurdistan area, out of the northern part of Syria, uh, to put to the Mexican border. There were about three times as many troops at the Mexican border. <laughs> so. Uh, there were very few there in the first place, but clearly the Kurds were America's allies. All the U.S. had to do was say to Turkey, no, these people are under our protection. You are not to move across that border. We still control the skies.
0: Elliot, even though there was only a handful of American troops left there, is there an argument to be made that the reason the Turks stayed on their side of the border was because of the presence of those U.S. troops?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was just suggesting, that yeah. uh, they were... The term being used now is they were tripwire, uh, but it, it was more than that. It's it's a statement by America that these are uh, people that we are involved with and they are our allies, and uh, Turkey, you're also our ally. You shouldn't be crossing that border. The U.S. Uh, basically said uh, publicly, and what's said privately we don't know because it was done on a phone call, but we, what was being said publicly is uh Turkey told us to get out, and we said okay.
0: And we're starting to find out from some of the reporting over the last couple of days, too, that this argument, and I guess there was some sort of an argument going on uh, at the White House about what to do with this border and the U.S. troops, was at least in part, if not uh, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, as to why John Bolton left. He yes, va- Apparently a- he vehemently disagreed with Trump on this.
3: Yes, there's uh, and, and other issues that <laughs> John Bolton was also involved in. Uh, discussing Ukraine, uh, he was vehemently opposed to what Giuliani was up to as well. And we can come to that separately. Oh, yeah. What, what is uh, absolutely clear, and we should remind ourselves that this was sudden, in a sense, by Trump. Uh, Erdo, he and Erdogan had a conversation, and Trump said, OK, I'm pulling out. But he was going to do that last December, mm-hmm. uh, just before Christmas. James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, highly regarded, resigned over exactly this issue, Trump has been wanting to do what he's now done, and uh, what we see is the, is the mess and the chaos that's, that's ensued. But this was the entire security establishment of America, basically, uh, opposed pulling out those, those uh, American forces and abandoning our Kurdish allies. But uh, Trump was determined to do it. He tried to do it, in a sense, some months ago, and now he's gone ahead and done it.
0: Yeah, but this—the flimsy excuse that he gave at that time is that, look, it, I made a campaign promise three years ago to bring all our troops home. Uh, really, doesn't hold any water. I mean, there, there, there was a strategic placement there, and, and, and as you talked about the day after that happened, when you were talking with us here on the show, uh, the dominoes have already started to fall. The Turks have crossed the border right now. The Russians are back in Syria once again, if they ever left. Uh, and there's been a change in the power dynamic there simply because Trump for some, as you mentioned, arbitrary reason, decided, okay, we're out of here?
3: The, um, everything in the Middle East is far more complicated than it looks on the surface, and on the surface it's already complicated. So what we see on the surface right now is uh, Russia has suddenly announced that they are going to play a very benign role here, separating out the Syrian army, the army of Syria, from occupying its own territory <laughs> uh, by taking over the Kurdish areas that Turkey now has has said uh, they're going to take over, they're going to clean out, and they're going to relocate uh, a lot of uh, the Syrian refugees back into there. And we should give credit, by the way, the, as a tiny footnote here, uh, Turkey deserves full credit for its handling of the Syrian refugee crisis in the sense they've taken in perhaps as many as 4 million and, uh, and treated them better than other places. But beyond that, Turkey is now saying, we're, we're coming south. The Syrian army is saying, we're going north. And Russia has said, okay, we're going to intervene. So these two forces don't actually meet each other. They don't actually fight. And because, after all, uh, Russia has, has made uh, Turkey de facto a junior partner in, in its alliance with Iran. And uh, Syria hasn't controlled that area in a long time. But the Kurds are, meanwhile, paying the price.
0: All right, let's uh, switch over and and talk about some of the latest developments with Ukraine. Uh, Rudy Giuliani's implication with the uh, the two guys that were arrested last week, we're finding out now, and he's admitted... Uh, that he was paid $500,000 uh, to work for these guys. They, they, he said to give them advice. He was a consultant, I guess, when it came to security. There's a certain irony there, isn't there? Uh, but uh, a lot of questions about that. And uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, apparently is speaking out on ABC tonight, yes.
3: uh, defending no, he, himself. He's, already, he's given that interview now, yeah. and, and it's uh, being being discussed. I'd like to link the two stories yeah. before we dive into the... We, we've We've not really plumbed the details of the... Syrian situation by any means. Essentially, uh, Donald Trump has turned over uh, at the expense of the Kurd, uh, Kurds. Uh, the, he's basically assisted Iran and Russia taking over this, this the remnants, the last part of Syria that was not controlled by the government. And that's an odd thing. While well, Meanwhile, putting everybody in jeopardy because of the release of the ISIS soldiers and creating chaos. But Let's link the two stories that are in the news right now, because the reason we're talking about Ukraine is it's tied up in the impeachment inquiry. Yep. And the impeachment inquiry has been narrowly defined by the, I think the Republicans have cleverly, brilliantly, really outfoxed the Democrats. The, the impeachment inquiry has been narrowly, narrowly focused on uh, the Ukraine issue, a phone call. Rudy Giuliani's role and and we're learning much more about Rudy Giuliani's role and Bolton as you pointed out earlier but if you stand back from it uh, these two things are very closely related in in a very important way and we and I think it should be underlined or at least analyzed a bit the steps that Donald Trump Trump took to do what uh, I'm afraid I predicted at the start of all this throwing the Kurds under the bus that has outraged Republicans Mitch McConnell is joining with uh, uh, a lot of his colleagues. There's going to be a bipartisan pu- push pushback for the first time against Donald Trump by Republicans, and a v- uh, key leader in the evangelical movement, uh, Robertson, uh, I mean, an old uh, name that's been around for a very long time, has also come against uh, out against Donald Trump. So c- a crack in the coalition apparently behind Donald Trump over this issue of the abandoning of the Kurds. So what does this mean in terms of the likelihood of impeachment? Are the Republicans now willing, based on their outrage over, you know, double-crossing, throwing your, your allies under the bus and letting ISIS run free and turning Syria over to the Russians and Iranians, is this going to finally be a factor in the machinery already in place regarding impeachment? which has been narrowly defined as being over the Ukraine, over Ukraine issues, issues. But are the Republicans now going to say this is this is our chance? We really never did like Donald Trump, but he controls the Republican Party, he controls our base. We're getting everything we want out of him, but we don't like him. There's an impeachment underway. Is there a chance, based on this outrage, that there will be defections by Republicans to the impeachment side to convict, assuming that the House actually manages to get its act together, gets articles of impeachment through to the Senate. Are there 20 senators now on the Republican side who are going to feel free to get rid of Donald Trump? So that's, I think, one side of the equation, Bill. The other side is now the Republicans can say to the world, hey, we're not just, we're just, we're not just toadies for the Trump. If we oppose Trump, Uh, when he deserves it, we do it. and and So you can't accuse us of just being toadies. We have a backbone. We have a spine. Everybody's saying, get a spine. But we don't agree on an impeachment, so they're off the hook. So there's two ways of playing that particular side of this, uh, a very important issue.
0: Is that why uh, Adam Schiff is suggesting that they'd like to get this whole thing wrapped up by uh, well, they said Thanksgiving, which for them of course is the end of November, uh, before the rage subsides?
3: No, I think... um, I you and know, I have discussed this a bit, uh, much earlier. I think that the Republicans basically, meaning Trump, has set the parameters for how the Democrats go ahead on impeachment. Uh, and, it's, and it's quite brazen. And the Democrats are really uh, totally incapable of handling it. What the Republicans have said is, you know, the Democrats are just after Trump because uh, they lost an election they should have won. They're trying to relitigate. Uh, the the past, uh, they can't do anything looking forward, and the Democrats have said, okay, we will now say we will only base our, our complaint about uh, Trump on impeachment, not for anything, say, that the Mueller report did. Remember, Mueller said if we could exonerate the president, we would, but we can't. Meaning Congress has to do its job. You can't look back, says the Republicans. The Democrats are saying, No, that's okay, we'll look forward. What we're going to talk about is only Ukraine, not about money, not about money laundering, not about Russians, not about anything else. Just this one issue which is far removed from the day to day concerns of any American, you know, worried about uh feeding their family and getting their kids into college and things. So this is not a day to day issue there. But the Republicans did that. And they also then said this is just, just harassment. Trump says, this is presidential harassment. You lost on Mueller. You couldn't uh, tie me down. So now you're going to harass me right up till the election. And the Democrats are saying, oh, no, we are not going to harass the president up until election. We're going to wrap up this impeachment thing by Thanksgiving. So the Republicans basically are, are um, hurting the Democrats in directions that are favorable to Trump.
0: Let's let's talk about support uh, for the president. And as you mentioned, the red hatters are going to be there no matter what. Uh, like Sam Donaldson, of course, uh, uh, was quoted over the weekend and said they will march into hell with Trump. I mean, so that's that's not going to change much. But one of the interesting aspects uh, over the last couple of days was a Fox News poll that actually said the majority of Americans now favor impeachment. Uh, Shepard Smith, longtime anchor over at Fox News, resigned because he said he couldn't take the hyperbole that was coming from some of his colleagues and defending pre- Trump no matter what. Are there cracks there in that solid support? That, that was a, a strong foundation for the support, of course, uh, yes. leading up to this, Elliot. He always had Fox News on his back. Do it, right. maybe, not so much now.
3: Now he's feuding with Fox News, but uh, there's another way to view this as well. The, um, I've been tra- tracking this uh, as, as closely as I can. The question of 51%, and I'll say impeachment, and even conviction and removal from office, as reported by Fox, just actually shows the polls <laughs> the polls are showing essentially the Democrats who were on the fence earlier about whether there should or should not be an impeachment as Nancy Pelosi was. Now that she has said, yes, we're going to go for impeachment, those are basically Democrats. Remember, Trump has never had more than uh, his his approval ratings go between 38 and 45 or something. So this this is in keeping with the long term popularity of trump, what happens to the republican base? that's what it's uh, and the independence and among them to the republicans apparently uh, despite the cracks in the evangelical side of things over over Syria, apparently the Republican base is staying solid. There has been some shift among independents toward impeachment and conviction, but at the moment uh, the fact that Fox has reported something that was you know, everybody else was reporting is, is interesting. A tiny footnote on this one, and, and it's very uh, uh, something you've raised, is that William Barr, the attorney general, went to see the owner of Fox News, Murdoch, the night before that shocking resignation by the news side of Fox News. Uh, the, so William Barr, who's supposed to be the people's attorney, but it seems to be part of the, you know, committee to re-elect the president, goes to Murdoch, and the next day, uh, one of the few independent voices on the news side, not the opinion side of Fox News, resigns. Is there now a purge, basically, going to go on inside Fox News to bring the few voices in Fox News that are not just signed on as, um, as, as Trump supporters? Are they, are they now an endangered species? Barr's
0: another story too. We could just spend another yeah. hour talking with that. I mean, he, he just just before that meeting, of course, he spent the last couple of weeks uh, globe trotting, going around to U.S. capitals, and, and basically trying to dig up dirt on Rudy Giuliani, which I'm not sure is the job of the Attorney General. Uh, well, he, it's, it, he seems it, to be
3: freelancing a lot, Elliot. Well, I, 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 I see. It. William Barr is going around the world. The, the brazenness of all this. The, the Trump people have said to the Democrats, "You cannot investigate." What went on? That's relitigating. The American people have spoken. We're not going back. Well, William Barr is going around the world using the prestige and power and influence of America to get America's allies to sign on to a, a, a fantasy uh, that Donald Trump has that the Mueller report should never have started. So the American president is sending his attorney general around the world to get other intelligence agencies to say that american intelligence agencies the fbi and the cia were wrong in leading up to the Mueller report and that's that's just shocking and and brazen but they get away with this the democrats are not at all effective in bringing this kind of fact to to the uh, attention of the public in a way that makes any difference
0: Where's Sam Irvin when you need him? He was the, uh, the Democratic senator, yes. of course, who led the impeachment hearings. And by the way, just as I said by issue to that, the attorney general of that day, the Nixon administration, John Mitchell, actually did jail time for abusing his office. I don't know if Barr has any, yes. any historical perspective on this, but he's trying to, He's on thin ice now.
3: Well, there's a lot of subpoenas flying around. Obstruction of justice is going to be part of the impeachment uh, uh, let, let me just hesitate a moment on the impeachment issue and raise something that hasn't been... Sure, we've got, we got less than a, about a minute left. Okay. Okay, so it's entirely possible that Trump is going to come out really triumphant on this. But well, we have an inquiry whether there should be an impeachment. It's not certain the Democrats can even get that far because the Republicans are targeting the 31 seats in the House that had been Trump's seats that are now with the Democrats in the majority. <laughs> uh, if that collapses... And Trump has guaranteed victory in the in the election.
0: Uh more to come on this. Uh, almost uh, by the hour. <laughs> Elliot, thanks for this today. We'll talk later. Oh, you're on. very welcome, Bill. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carlton University.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on
0: 900 CHML.